trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this is the place. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. Great sponsors make this program possible, including MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as LifesavingFood.com. Hey, thought I would mention this since, uh, you know, when you're building a food storage plan, you want to have something that you're actually going to use. And I have a daughter who cannot eat gluten. And I know I'm not the only one who sees it. I see the gluten-free sections of the store. And if you're trying to plan meals, if you're trying to plan food storage around someone who is gluten intolerant, well, let's just say that you, you have your work cut out for you. But I thought I would point out, lifesavingfood.com actually has a wonderful gluten-free 84-serving entree and breakfast bucket. Yes, 84 servings. Easily stackable bucket with an easy grab-and-go handle. Just $199.99. So this is something to think about. It could just be a part of your existing food storage program, but if you have somebody who has problems with gluten, isn't it nice to know that there are alternatives? Go to the website. I've provided a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Get 10% off your purchase by using the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Well, let's jump in. There's a lot going on today. Of course, uh, there's there's a great deal of uh, attention being paid to the upcoming September 11th, uh, you know, uh, anniversary, 20 years. We're going to talk a little bit. In fact, maybe I'm going to, yeah, I'll jump ahead. Let's let's go right to it. This is one of the things that uh, I've tried to understand this for years. And I, I re- look, I remember very well, you know, watching things unfold on September 11th of 2001. That's a day not many of us who were around for it are, are likely to forget. It was uh, traumatic and interesting, and uh, and it left a very strong impression. Nonetheless, it seems like a lot of big government types get really squirrely whenever 9-11 approaches, at least the anniversary. And James Corbett is warning that uh, this is not a time to uh, to get lax on, uh, you know, how you process information. In other words, he's saying be skeptical, especially when you hear warnings about potential attacks for which there is no substantive evidence. And the crazy thing about this is the the uh, threat of the attack is morphing from, you know, the traditional they hate us for our freedoms to, you know, somebody is likely to do violence against these vaccination centers. Now, there's a there's a phrase called false flag, and this is events that are that take place that uh, are used to justify some kind of intervention, the Gulf of Tonkin incident that brought the U.S. into the uh, Southeast Asia conflict in Vietnam. You know, apparently, well, there was an attack on a ship in the Gulf of Tonkin, and that's why we have to do It was a false flag event. It was made up. 
but it was used to justify some very real consequences that happened, including the U.S. being involved in a war that ultimately took the lives of about 50,000 servicemen, and who knows how many Vietnamese. So I want you to listen for just a moment or two as James Corbett from the Corbett Report talks about a very fascinating warning being issued by uh, apparently the Swiss intelligence officials. Here's what he has to say. And given all of the other information that's streaming across the news wires right now, I think this is significant. So let's turn to the Straits Times from just this past week, uh, August 29th, where they warned that Switzerland is warning of terror attacks on COVID-19 vaccine sites. And I think the way they talk about this is particularly interesting. First, just the facts, ma'am. Switzerland's Federal Intelligence Service is warning of potential terrorist attacks on coronavirus vaccine infrastructure, including vaccination centers, transport and manufacturing facilities, newspaper NZZ um, Sondag reported on Sunday, August 29. Uh, Attacks on such targets would both hit large crowds and generate intensive media coverage, the agency spokesman Isabel Graber said in a written response to questions from NZZ. Now, here is the kicker. This is the punchline to this particular article. The agency is concerned about attacks from militant groups, the newspaper reported. So far, there are no tangible indications of planned attacks, according to the agency. Let me reread that because they bury it halfway through the third paragraph of this story after everyone who is only going to read the headline has long since bailed on this story. So far, there are no tangible indications of planned attacks, according to the agency. So Switzerland's Federal Intelligence Service is warning there's going to be attacks on vaccination centers. Oh, really? What kind of intelligence do you have on that? Well, absolutely none. We have zero, nothing, absolutely no indicators of any activity whatsoever in preparation for any kind of attack. But we're going to tell you what kind of attack is going to happen, what kind of sites are going to be hit, and what kind of mass casualties are going to be generated, along with the media coverage, which, hey, is already happening in advance here. Isn't that convenient for the real terrorists, the people who are terrorizing the public, are not the scary bearded Muslim boogeymen, nor are they the damn anti-vaxxer, anti-maskers who just want people to die. No, it is, of course, as always, the federal intelligence services, the governments themselves who are terrorizing the population, saying, watch out, there's going to be a big bombing, a big spectacular terror attack, and when it happens, you will already know who to blame. I mentioned this on New World Next Week in the very recent past that I have not seen this level of false flag preparedness taking place in many years now. There is always, and I mean always, and go back through the New World Next Week archives if you are doubtful on this point, but there are always... There's always some story that comes up around the 9-11 anniversary to bring the Al-Qaeda boogeyman back into the public consciousness and the specter of the never-ending war on terror. Anyway, you get the point. You you see what he's talking about there. And look, I don't know. Maybe there are some bad mashes out there that are really trying to, you know, to to pull off some sort of, you know, terror attack to top 9-11. But it's very curious when this kind of thing is used to, to generate fear and to generate, you know, that, that sense of uneasiness. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. 
but it's it it only tends to serve those in power. This is why we have to clamp down. This is why we're going back to the, uh, you know, to the color-coded terror alert system. Do you guys remember what that was like? What are we on today? Are we on burnt orange, or did we go for more of an umber color? I don't, I don't recall, but I like, uh, you know, back before the Babylon Bee, used to get all of your parody from The Onion, and, and The Onion was pretty good. One of the, the headlines they had back around, I'm thinking 2004, 2005, was that uh, U.S. officials will now, instead of doing, you know, constant terror alerts, they will just simply have a siren that will play at, at an ear-splitting decibel level constantly, as long as everything is good. You'll just have this constant siren just screaming that everything is okay. <laughs> Because it really feels like sometimes we're, we're, we're being manipulated like that. Look, I don't want to plant ideas for conspiracies in your head, but I definitely want to encourage you that this is a good time to be skeptical. If you're, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to consume mass media, make sure that you've got a few grains of salt to take along with whatever it is that is being served up. Because the, the people who are in power, the politicians, the bureaucrats, their narrative managers in the mass media, they understand the value of getting people engaged emotionally. They understand the value of, of manipulating how people see the world. And it's, it's just interesting, the seeds that are being planted, you know, of, well, you know, there's going to be attack on vaccination facilities. You know, the people I know... And I don't know a lot of people, but the ones I do know who are are resistant to the idea of being forced to take that vaccine. They're not doing so because they're violent jihadists. They're people who understand what their rights are, who make a very clear delineation between this is my personal sovereignty and government. You may not step over this line. But I promise you, this kind of propaganda is aimed at at those people, as if they were the equivalent of some Al-Qaeda boogeyman, as James Corbett puts it. Be skeptical. Consume less media, unless, of course, you know, you're trying to get your fear fixed, in which case they'll give you all that you can handle. But also be vigilant and just understand that terror works for the people in power as much as it works for the terrorists. It's a symbiotic relationship. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, so I I had to get the false flag thing off my chest. I feel better. Otherwise, it was just going to sit there and gnaw away at me under the surface. And I also, you know, I don't, I don't want to spread the uh, the uh, sensationalism that seems to drive so much of the news coverage these days. You know, everything. It's a, it's a breaking story. The most important thing that ever happened. It's happening every day exactly at this time. And yeah, that's, that's a gimmick that's kind of been played out. Not that there aren't important things happening. There are. But the hype and the sensationalism, that ought to be a pretty dead giveaway that someone is trying to hack your brain, trying to get you to feel a certain way, 
maybe run in a certain direction. Be careful about that. Now, I got a couple of interesting articles here uh, pertaining to the right to keep and bear arms. I I don't know if you knew this. When you think of Texas, do you, do you not think of a state that, well, they're pretty serious about, you know, their freedoms there? I would have thought, based on my, you know, few visits to Texas and the people I know who are Texans, that Texas would be one of the most Second Amendment friendly, or let me put that another way, one of the most right to keep and bear arms friendly states in the Republic. But they fought it. You know, that's, uh, I don't know if it's just because they have such a huge population, but uh, Texas has fought and fought and fought. But finally, after a long, long time, just a few days ago, they became an open carry state. Meaning that uh, they have, you know, the, the latest constitutional carry. And this is a good thing. Now, I got to confess something, and I hope you won't think less of me for telling you this, but I've had a concealed carry permit for nearly 30 years. And I remember one of my co-workers at the radio station telling me, you know, 30-some years ago, that uh, he had a concealed carry permit. And I was like, really? I didn't even know they handed those things out. You know, that was very interesting. So I applied for one. I got one. And, you know, I remember going and getting fingerprinted down at the sheriff's office and the deputy who fingerprinted me asking, so why do you need one of these? And I'm just, I don't know. It just seems like a good thing to have. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed at how little I actually knew at that time about, you know, what, uh, what kind of a responsibility you're really taking on. That's not to say I was dangerous. Let's just say I had some misconceptions in my head about what that permit meant. Now, fortunately for me, uh, number one, someone introduced me to a little book called in the Gravest Extreme. This is by a former police captain by the name of Masad Ayub. He still teaches, by the way. He's a marvelous um, firearms instructor. Most importantly, though, Masad Ayub teaches people when it's appropriate versus when it isn't appropriate to bring deadly force into a situation. And reading his book was the beginning of competency for me. Um, since that time, I have regularly attended, you know, the best training that I can afford, you know, and again, it's, it's not just how to shoot. You should have a very strong minor into, or into when it's okay and when it isn't. And part of the, part of the whole thing is learning to be aware so that you don't find yourself backed into a corner where you have no choice but to pull the personal firearm in defense of yourself. Now, when my current permit expires, I think it expires here in a couple of years. Even though I've carried one for 30 years, I am 99% sure I won't be renewing my concealed carry permit. And I know some people are thinking, Brian, you're already a sellout for having one. Why would you go to government and ask permission to exercise a God-given right? And I'm guilty. You know, I've, I've gone for the permit because it has made things easier in many ways. When I'm traveling between states that recognize permits, I know I can safely conceal carry and not to expect to be hassled if for some reason I have an interaction with law enforcement. I've also seen law enforcement interactions that were de-escalated because I had a permit. So it's bought me some goodwill. It's gotten me out of some tickets, too. But... I don't like the idea that I should have to ask permission 
before I exercise a right and pay the government. May I please here have money, please? Now may I exercise my right? Hannah Cox, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has written about why Texas is now an open carry state and why it's a good thing. And her point is it's always been antithetical to the spirit of the Constitution to require a license to own a firearm. So, as of two days ago, you no longer have to pay the government to carry a gun in Texas. Now, Hannah says, look, many people think of Texas as the Wild West. They may be surprised that this was ever the case in the Lone Star State. But Texas previously required a license to carry a gun, a restriction on citizens' rights you still find in 31 other states. Now, most of the time, that means citizens can keep guns in their homes or cars, but to carry on their person, they're expected to complete a class and then pay the government a recurring fee to obtain their permit. That could cost hundreds of dollars. Now, I've always had permits either between the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. They've been very, very affordable. But it's, uh, you know, I, I it's not a matter of, boy, I think they're evil for requiring this permit. It's just I'm getting tired of asking permission. And, I, and here's Hannah Cox, you know, talks about why it's a good thing to be able to exercise this right to keep and bear arms without having to jump through government hoops. So to address this this concern over uh, people needing to obtain that permit, the Texas state legislature passed what's called a constitutional carry bill during their last session. Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law in June. Now, the bill didn't actually change the eligibility for purchasing or owning a gun. In other words, the state still blocks anyone under age 21 from gun ownership, as well as people with criminal records. And those who wish to purchase a gun, they still have to go through the background check as well. Constitutional carry, she says, merely means that citizens no longer have to pay the government or jump through hoops in order to legally exercise their right to bear arms. Now, be that as it may, it hasn't stopped the hand-wringing over the new law by many progressives, and, and I've seen this too, by firearms instructors who profit greatly off those licensing mandates, and police all of whom are now spending considerable time warning the public this is going to lead to an increase in gun crime and violence. Here's a headline from the San Antonio Report. New gun laws in Texas will surely lead to more gun violence. Here's the Texas Tribune. New Texas law allowing people to carry handguns without permits stirs mix of fear and concern among law enforcement. And then you have, (laughs) excuse me, Moms Demand Action, a progressive anti-gun group offering to help businesses block consumers who carry. All right, then. (laughs) I've heard all of these before, though, and it's been said in every state in which, you know, constitutional carry has become a thing. Oh, it's going to lead to more violence. It's going to cause, you know, uh, it's going to cause problems for law enforcement. And it never does. What this does is this reveals who is under the sway of that creed of statism. You're going to hear me say this a lot, but it's, it's a creed worth knowing. Anything not under the direct control of the state is, by definition, out of control. That's what they're saying. Well, if they just had a permit, you know, we had some way of knowing. And Nope. This is one of those things the state doesn't need to be, uh, to be regulating. What a person has in his or her pocket is their own private property and their own business. As long as their behavior is peaceful, it's none of the state's business. Now, if you can show actual harm, 
damage done to another person or their property or fraud, yeah, then it's time for the state to get involved, but only for the purpose of restorative justice. Not micromanaging everybody to make sure that we're all good little boys and girls. We're going to come back to Hannah Cox's article here in just a few moments, but, you know, I I think if you are one of those people who has a concealed carry permit, it may be time to start rethinking whether you need it. I know it saves you money on the background check when you buy a gun. That's one of the reasons I've kept mine. But the novelty has started to wear off. I wonder why that is. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am uh, very happy to have the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage as one of my sponsors on the program. And this is a message especially for anyone who is purchasing a home in the state of Utah. And there's a lot of people moving to Utah right now. Oh, yeah. Talk to talk to anybody who runs the U-Haul rental counter. It's it's crazy how many people are relocating to the Intermountain West. It's created the most intense real estate market within most people's memory. And the bottom line is this. If you are shopping for a home, you've got to have your financing squared away beforehand. You can't find a home and they go, well, okay, well, let's go see if we can get the financing and, you know, and get this. You've got to have it in place now. This is what the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you do. Heather has decades of experience from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Even if you just want to refinance your existing mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Patriot Home Mortgage, of course, is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Call her at 435-703-4522 or drop by their office, 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Hannah Cox, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, is laying out the reasons why it was a good thing for the state of Texas to become an open carry state, even though people were, you know, oh, it's going to cause blood, there's going to be trouble. She says these talking points are tired. They don't stand up to reality. First and foremost, she says it's antithetical to the spirit of the Constitution to require a license to exercise a right clearly defined in the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights. She says for no other right do we demand citizens jump through hoops or pay the government to use them. I like the example she uses. She says imagine if similar requirements were implemented for free speech or freedom of religion. That would be a gross injustice, as our gun permits. Additionally, she says, making people pay to take a class and then pay to obtain a license from government does little more than block poor people from exercising their rights. Now, some of these requirements were put in place to intentionally block people of color from accessing guns in the past. Yes, gun control has a very racist history. Laws that continue to reverberate today, making these measures even more unjust. And she says there's nothing about paying the government that makes a person less or more likely to be violent. In fact, those who intend to commit violence already intend to break the law. So they're not going to be bothered with a permitting process in the first place. Arguments to the contrary are totally detached from reason 
the nature of crime, and everything we know about violence. Lastly, and she says without getting too much into the weeds, it's important to point out that the way the vast majority of gun violence and deaths are tracked and reported is deeply problematic, to say the least, if not downright disingenuous. Here's what she means. Mass shootings include any incident where four or more people are killed in a general area. So that means even when the shooter is known to the victims, they're in their own home or a crime is gang-related, they all get lumped into this arbitrary category that makes gun violence by strangers seem more prevalent than it is. Suicides are lumped in with homicides, which also leads the public to think there's more gun crime than there is. And the number of times a year guns save lives is usually overlooked altogether. For the records, for the record, she says estimates show at least 162,000 lives are saved by gun ownership each year, and millions of crimes are prevented. And it's possible there's even more simply because oftentimes when someone uses a firearm to prevent the commission of a crime, there's no police report filed. There's no crime that took place. There's no need for the police to get involved. Had a good friend who was, uh, I, I can't remember if he was at the car wash or um, he was somewhere out and around doing stuff late one night and was approached by three individuals who appeared to have shady motives. The, the way they were moving, the way that they were coordinating their movements led my friend to believe, yeah, these guys are, are sizing me up, you know, for a mugging or a robbery or something. Now, he didn't throw down on them and command them, you know, get on the ground. He, all he did was he simply pulled back his shirt so that they could see he was armed. And suddenly these three chaps realized they had more important business over on the other side of town, and away they went. That's how it often goes. The criminal is looking for someone who isn't going to be able to fight back. And if, if you can demonstrate that uh, or even give the impression that you are capable of protecting yourself, they're not interested. They, didn't, they don't want the fight. They want whatever the money is. They, they, they want the easy pickings. They'll go look for somebody who looks more like food. Hannah Cox says, Furthermore, we have strong data that show ownership of guns actually correlates with less violence, not more. Statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice show that U.S. gun-related homicides dropped 39% over the course of 18 years, from 18,253 during 1993 to 11,101 in 2011. Now, during that same period, non-fatal firearm crimes decreased even more, a whopping 69%. And during that same period, gun ownership increased significantly, even breaking records in 2012. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) Best gun salesman that the industry's ever seen. Now, on the other hand, she says we continue to see states with the strictest gun laws lead the nation in actual gun crimes and homicides. California and Illinois, which all but block residents from gun ownership altogether, lead the nation in mass shootings. And New York, which has similar laws in the city, recently experienced a 166% increase in gun violence during the pandemic. So here's the bottom line. The Texas law doesn't necessarily mean more people are going to carry guns. It just means they won't have to pay the state before they do so. But if the new law does lead to more people exercising their rights, that would still be a positive story either way. Yeah, how about that? 
Just because people, you know, don't have to have the permit doesn't mean that everybody's going to decide, I need to carry a gun. The people who do feel like they need to carry a gun will already have been carrying one. And I think that the beauty of this is this lessens their likelihood of having to have any interaction with police. It's one of the things I like about, uh, you know, the the so-called constitutional carry. Um, Your right doesn't come from the Constitution. The Constitution just recognizes it in the Bill of Rights. It's a pre-existing right. I know it's, it's semantics, but it's important we understand the flow of power. The Constitution gives you no rights whatsoever. None. What it does is it calls into existence the federal government. It defines the upper limits of its power. It defines the duties of each branch of of the government. It defines how their powers are balanced and checked among the various branches. But it gives you no rights. And the Bill of Rights, if you look at this carefully, you'll recognize is a prohibition on government to interfere with the exercise of those rights. Well, where did they come from? Well, they're natural rights. They existed before government. They continue to exist in the absence of government. All the Bill of Rights is doing is saying, hey, these are off limits, especially. These are enumerated. But in the Ninth Amendment, it goes on to say that just because there's something that's not listed here, if it's a natural right, it's still yours and should not be infringed upon. I'm sorry for the little civics lesson here, but this is, this is important. People need to understand There is a proper flow of power, and the government gets its power from us, not the other way around. You don't get your liberty from the government. Government is called into existence to protect your liberty, which already exists, and which you give or you vest some power in government. And by the way, that's a temporary vesting of power. It's not like, okay, here, it's yours. Do with it what you want. It can be taken away. It can be limited. Laws like were just passed in Texas and that just uh, went into effect are a good example of this. You know, the state of Utah some years ago, um, I believe they passed and then the governor didn't want to sign uh, a law saying that uh, they could have constitutional carry. But they they wanted to make it so that but uh, if you don't have a permit, you still have to make sure that your gun is at least two actions away from from being loaded, meaning it has to have an unloaded chamber or um, you have to basically it wouldn't have prevented more interaction with the police. It would have encouraged more interaction with the police. Why? Because they would have to check and see, well, let's see, are you in compliance? Whereas a legit constitutional carry law that just says, look, as long as you're not engaged in criminal behavior, you can carry openly, you can carry, you know, concealed. As long as your behavior is peaceful, that officer has absolutely no reason to stop and check you out. Unless, of course, probable cause exists that there's some kind of a crime. But that's, you know, a different story. Just because someone sees you with a gun on your hip or under your jacket doesn't mean that we got to get the law involved. And I know for statists, that's a really hard thing to imagine. But, but, but isn't it out of control? Nope. Only in your mind. Let it go. <laughs> Let people exercise their freedom. You'll be surprised at how responsible they actually are. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Oh, I've just got so many different things going on here. Ways that uh, ways that uh, we can look at the world. And my goal always is not to, to prove to you just how right I am. See, I told you. I told you. No, it's, it's more to just get you thinking at a little bit deeper level. One of the things I wanted to bring up, because uh, I haven't brought this up yet, but uh, when, it, uh, when it comes to speaking out as a voice of dissent, I don't think I've seen anybody who has been more thoroughly maligned and, uh, and treated badly than former Trump advisor Dr. Scott Atlas. You think about uh, what was going on last year. This was the guy who actually was questioning much of the effectiveness and and also questioning a lot of the collateral damage being done by lockdown policies. Now, I understand. He's one guy. But uh, what he was saying has been borne out. And the fact that he was correct is apparently still lost on many. There was a very interesting article. This was published in The Federalist a couple of days ago, written by Helen Raleigh. The headline is Dr. Scott Atlas says... Science killed itself over COVID-19. You know, that's that used to be that used to be kind of the, the refuge of well, at least we can count on science. In fact, you know, for 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 the uh stereotypical neck beard, this is the guy in the fedora, my lady, you know, the guy who's you know, I, I don't believe in religion, that's for weak souls. I believe in science, you know. I can always count on science. A lot of people's faith in science has been shaken. And as Dr. Scott Atlas explains, it's because science isn't supposed to be about intimidating or abusing or even censoring data. There's never supposed to be some accepted view of science. That's dogma. That's crossing over into religion. Here's the article by Helen Raleigh. She says, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, American people have been told to follow the science. Yet for a year and a half, They've heard contradicting messages from self-appointed prophets of the science like Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She says, we learned that politicians who claimed their decisions were science-driven often ignored scientific findings that didn't fit certain political narratives. We discovered that scientists are fallible human beings and some would let personal interests and political views cloud their judgment. Now, that brings up the question, is science itself one of the victims of the COVID-19 pandemic? This is what Helen Raleigh asked Dr. Scott Atlas at the 13th Annual Freedom Conference hosted by the Steamboat Institute. That's a Colorado-based nonprofit organization. Now, Dr. Atlas, formerly a professor and chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center, he's now a senior fellow in health policy at the Hoover Institution. And Atlas has been under constant attacks by the left and the corporate media since he served as a special advisor to former President Trump and a member of the White House Corona Task Force from August to November of 2020. The New York Times and Washington Post ran hit pieces on Atlas, questioning his qualifications despite his distinguished career in scholarship. Google-owned YouTube also removed a 50-minute video of Atlas's interview with the Hoover Institute. Twitter took down his tweet that questioned the effectiveness of masks. But Atlas has refused to be silenced. He has a lot to say about how the scientific field and Americans' trust in it has been tremendously harmed during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
He told Helen Raleigh, science has not just been a victim, but actively participated in the self-destruction of its credibility. And to prove his point, he uh, refers to the now infamous letter published in Lancet, which denounced the lab leak theory as a conspiracy that created fear, rumors, and prejudice. Facebook fact-checkers used the letter to censor discussion of the lab leak theory for more than a year. But then it surfaced in the Daily Mail that Peter Daszak, president of the EcoHealth Alliance, orchestrated a group of scientists to write the letter without disclosing the EcoHealth Alliance's close financial ties to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now many scientists accept that the the, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology lab leak theory is just as probable as the natural origin theory. Funny how that happens, right? The truth eventually gets out. Atlas also faulted leading scientific publications like Nature and Lancet for playing important roles in encouraging, enabling, and enforcing the false narrative. In June, journalist Ian Burrell cited one source who estimated the publisher of Nature had sponsorship agreements worth millions of dollars from Chinese institutions. Now, Atlas says science is not supposed to be about intimidating or countering interpretation of data or abusing or censoring data. Science is not supposed to have a view. Science is only about data and the scientific process. There's never supposed to be an accepted view of science. Now, politicians and pundits also lost people's trust by advocating regulations that were not based in fact. Atlas said the phrase, follow the science, should never be uttered again by people who do not know the actual data. They must stop. He says they have no credibility whatsoever when they get up and say, follow the science. It's clear many of them don't know the science, don't understand the science, and they're not using the science to make the recommendations. So how can science and scientists recover from the trust deficit? Well, it depends on only one thing. Atlas says that's the visibility of the scientific process, which by definition is about the visibility of the data. There should be no censorship of views and interpretation of different data. Do not intimidate or issue harsh condemnations of people just because you disagree with them. Let the truth prevail by the data. Now, he's received hundreds of emails from other scientists who've encouraged him to remain outspoken while they're afraid to speak up themselves. The science of the saving of science really depends on scientists to come forward and to be unafraid to say that the objectivity of the science and the scientific process itself has been contaminated and impeded, Atlas continued. When more scientists come forward, there will hopefully be a reversal of that trust deficit. There is no such thing as science without the evidence being visible and debates being current. Science doesn't exist in any other way. So how can we do a better job of fighting back the next time our ruling class tries to send us into crisis mode? Well, we have to recognize what the data revealed about this current pandemic. Atlas cited several studies, including one by Aaron Benavid and other scientists of Stanford University, showing lockdowns didn't work to keep COVID-19 from spreading while imposing their own severe additional costs. Atlas said lockdowns destroyed people by shutting down medical care, stopping people from seeking emergency medical care, 
increasing drug abuse, increasing death by suicide, more psychological damage, particularly among the younger generation. Hundreds and thousands of child abuse cases were unreported. Teenagers' self-harm cases have tripled. And Atlas also noted that uh, the increase in other deaths, like tuberculosis, caused by the world's focus on COVID-19. Now, the World Health Organization warned in 2020 of an additional 400,000 deaths from tuberculosis because of the diversion of resources to COVID-19. Atlas said mortality data showing that anywhere from a third or half of the deaths during the pandemic were not due to COVID-19. They were extra deaths due to lockdowns. Besides causing health issues, the lockdowns have enormous economic costs, especially for poor people and developing countries. The Bangladesh economy shutdown during the pandemic was forecast to wipe out nearly $3 billion and close to 900,000 jobs off that nation's economy with devastating effect on the nation's poor. Atlas emphasized we can never use the lockdown strategy again. Instead, we should offer targeted protection for high-risk people, but no lockdowns of low-risk people. Which, by the way, other scientists, like the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, have advocated for that very same approach. Atlas also offers additional advice on how to prepare for the next pandemic based on lessons learned from COVID-19. He has a new book out, A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. Ultimately, Atlas said, the most important lesson to learn from the COVID-19 pandemic is that individuals must take responsibility for their own health-related decisions. We should never surrender our autonomy and capability to assess our risk tolerance to bureaucrats or the so-called expert class. How do you like that? A legit expert telling us, hey, don't outsource your autonomy or your risk tolerance and, and the capability of assessing risk tolerance to people like me. I don't know. That makes him a little more trustworthy in my mind, but maybe I'm just the odd duck. Check out the show notes. They are at thebrianhideshow.com. Lots of great reading, lots of great research. You got a long weekend ahead of you. Might be a great way to pass the time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me as we exercise our right to revel in wrong think. Yeah, it's not about having all the answers, but it's about being able to freely question and hopefully come up with the right answer by asking the right questions. But for some reason, that really bothers some people. And I guess that's a good thing for them and or a good a bad thing for them and a good thing for me. Happy to have you on board as a free thinker, someone willing to stand up and to claim your heritage as a free individual. 
Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Wanted to start this hour with a really great essay from my friend Barry Brownstein. You know, it's, it's pretty commonplace these days to explain opposition to vaccination mandates on the part of the unvaccinated as well. These are just people who've been misled by misinformation on vaccines or they're stupid or they're selfish. Very few times are we allowed to consider that maybe there is another reason. In fact, maybe there's a legit reason why people are not anxious to embrace what's being you know forced on them from so many angles. I like uh, Barry Brownstein's latest article, The Totalitarian Roots of Vaccine Mandates. And I think this is possibly the best explanation for why people like myself are so resistant to the idea of something like this being mandated, being implemented right over the top of your personal autonomy. Here's what he has to say. He says, over the course of the pandemic, Principles of what a free society means are being redefined by collectivists. And, and listen to this explanation. This, this is so Orwellian. He says, consider this essay. Don't COVID vaccine mandates actually promote freedom? Medical ethicists Kyle Ferguson and Arthur Kaplan argue those who oppose cracking down on the unvaccinated are getting it all wrong. Ferguson and Kaplan are sure their opponents have a flawed view of freedom. They argue Passports and mandates are hardly strong-arm tactics. These strategies are better seen as liberty inducers. They bring about freedom rather than deplete it. Oh yeah, pull up a chair. You're going you're to need it for this. Now they add, a successful COVID-19 vaccination campaign will liberate us as individuals and as a collective from the callous grip of a pandemic that just won't seem to end. Orwell's party proclaimed in 1984 that freedom is slavery. And Barry Brownstein says Ferguson and Kaplan came very close to arguing slavery is freedom. Ferguson and Kaplan, he says, assure us that the Enlightenment view of the unbound individual is outdated. They want to reimagine freedom as communal, starting with the individual's participation in a community and the kind of community in which the individual lives. So here they develop their argument, quote, Here, freedom is communal rather than individualistic. And rather than being unbound, individuals in the free community are bound by and to each other. Communal freedom achieves much more than the unbound individual ever could. It creates new possibilities and expands our horizons. Life is enhanced when our community is free because we can participate in communal freedom and the goods it creates. I'm sorry, but that's that is that's a lot of word salad to say that they, they are embracing collectivism. Uh, Barry Brownstein says they want to take us back to the future with Rousseau as their guide. Quote, this view of freedom is like that of Rousseau's. A society is made free by individuals cooperating, by binding themselves to each other and to the rational pursuit of common goals. From this perspective... Vaccine mandates and other strong-arm tactics induce liberty rather than restrict it. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, for some, flowery visions of the common good have always been seductive. In fact, he references the road to serfdom by Friedrich Hayek, who observed that even well-meaning people will ask, 
if it be necessary to achieve important ends, why shouldn't the system be run by decent people for the good of the community as a whole? Now, Barry Brownstein says, Hayek challenges the axiomatic belief that wise people can tell others what the common good is. And Hayek goes on to explain why there is no such thing as the common good. Quote, The welfare and happiness of millions cannot be measured on a single scale of less or more. The welfare of people, like the happiness of a man, depends upon a great many things that can be provided in, in, in an infinite variety of combinations. End quote. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian James McGregor Burns recounts in his book Fire and Light how Rousseau's ideas of the general will led to the brutality of his disciple Robespierre. Like Hayek, Burns explains that there can be no agreement about what the common good is. Claiming to rule by the common good inevitably leads to excesses. Robespierre and the other 11 men who made up the Committee of Public Safety ruled France with unlimited power and terror. And Burns explains what Rousseau did not understand. Peaceful and democratic conflict is crucial to the achievement of freedom. Instead, Rousseau imagined, like Ferguson and Kaplan, a new society filled with good citizens working selflessly and with identical minds for the common good. Yeah, no competition in the marketplace of ideas? That's not a good thing. Uniformity is not the hallmark of a free people. That's the hallmark of a totalitarian state. Barry Brownstein says Rousseau's ideas are mantras for censors. In Rousseau's world, there would be no pesky long debates, dissensions, and tumult, impending implementation of the common good. Dr. Fauci is sure he is right, and he has had enough of those making different choices than his guidance. I mean, this was just, what, a couple weeks ago he was saying, I respect people's freedom, but when you're talking about a public health crisis that we've been going through now for well over a year and a half, the time has come, enough is enough. And Barry Brownstein says, let's not hide Fauci's plain meaning. I respect people's freedom to do what I tell them. Spot on. The basic human right to decide what goes into your body is now being reversed. So you're to take all the vaccines Dr. Fauci and Pfizer deem necessary. They, not you, will decide the parameters of your freedom with Ferguson and Kaplan cheering them on. Rest easy, like Robespierre, the fallible decisions of Dr. Fauci, politicians, bureaucrats, and cronies are all for the common good. And with freedom redefined, there will be no need to take personal responsibility for your health decisions. Those who don't go along with official guidance must be dealt with, ban them from travel, from schools, from employment. In Ferguson and Kaplan's Rousseauian view, society is merely expunging those that won't take a knee to whatever is proclaimed the common good. Now, Burns explains that the leaders operating from the common good mindset have the absolute conviction that they are right. And then he explores the French Revolution as he recounts the totalitarian tyranny of the Jacobins. The Jacobins believed only they understood the general will of the French people. Hence, they were morally right. And Burns continues, opposition was considered not merely mistaken, but evil and traitorous and hence punishable, even lethally. The Jacobins asserted a monopoly on virtue, which meant to them a license to kill those who held up other values. 
I don't think this is a frivolous comparison, by the way. It's, it's the idea that uh, we are so right that uh, standard, you know, applications of things like right and wrong, they don't uh, work in this case. They don't apply. We are so right that whatever we have to do, however many heads must be chopped off, that's what it's going to take because we're right. We are that right. I mean, that's scary stuff. And Barry Brownstein points out today, health Jacobins don't argue that they should kill the unvaccinated, but some of them do argue the unvaccinated should be deprived of health care. Maybe you've seen it. Well, if they're unvaccinated, they should be denied treatment. Do you think we're going to put you on a, on a ventilator when you had a chance to manage an illness and you chose not to? I mean, that's some pretty, that's some, that's the mark of a really small soul to sit there and wish harm on people. I mean, what was it? Just, just over the last few days, Joe Rogan was diagnosed with COVID earlier this week. And of course, because he has been um, a, a person who has spoken, maybe not out, you know, against vaccines. I mean, he said, you know, some people, you know, they should get it. But he's definitely said, but if you're healthy, you really shouldn't need it. Oh, that made people mad. So when he got COVID, what do you suppose happens? People are wishing for him to die. And he's frustrated those people. Why? Well, because he used ivermectin and uh, other, other treatments. And he's getting better. How dare he do that? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, one of our sponsors of the program. They are located in St. George, Utah. And if you are looking to secure financing for a VA loan or, you know, a reverse mortgage, you want to, you want to refinance your existing home loan, Heather's the one you need to talk to. Seriously, get on the horn with her and you can call. Very simple. Call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, you can go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where her office is. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I've been sharing this, uh, this essay from Barry Brownstein about the totalitarian roots of vaccine mandates. And I think it's absolutely appropriate that we are seeing a comparison to the thinking that drove the French Revolution. And it was the thinking of people who were so certain of their own righteousness and their own absolute infallibility that they could safely murder to their heart's content anyone who disagreed with them. That's really dangerous stuff. And yet we're seeing aspects of this. In the, in the piece by Barry Brownstein, he says, in his seminal essay, Individualism, True and False, F.A. Hayek contrasts true individualism and the false individualism of philosophers like Rousseau. True individualism is a product of an acute consciousness of the limitations of the individual mind, which induces an attitude of humility toward the impersonal and anonymous social processes. 
by which individuals help to create things greater than they know. Now, by contrast, false individualism is the product of an exaggerated belief in the powers of individual reason and of a consequent contempt for anything which has not been consciously designed by it or is not fully intelligible to it. So when Ferguson and Kaplan write, well, freedom is communal rather than individualistic, they, in Hayek's words, express the silliest of the common misunderstandings. The adoption of such ideas, Hayek explains, has been a source of modern socialism. And Barry Brownstein says the error made by collectivist apologists is the belief that individualism postulates or bases its arguments on the assumption of the existence of isolated or self-contained individuals instead of starting from men whose whole nature and character is determined by their existence in society. This false individualism of Rousseau and others assumes that everything which man achieves is the direct result of, and therefore subject to, the control of individual reason. Masquerading as people who reason the best, Ferguson and Kaplan in Hayek's words pretend to be able to directly comprehend social wholes like society. Now, Hayek's explanation of true individualism is the antidote for such hubris. Hayek's approach is anti-rationalistic and regards man not as a highly rational and intelligent, but a very irrational and fallible being whose individual errors are corrected only in the course of a social process and which aims at making the best of a very imperfect material. Now, we can never make the best of imperfect material when those posing as having superior knowledge are allowed to coerce others. Hayek writes, what individualism teaches us is that society is greater than the individual only insofar as it is free. Insofar as, as it is controlled or directed, it's limited to the powers of the individual minds which control or direct it. So, in other words, choose to be directed by the limited power of Dr. Fauci's mind or choose the virtually unlimited and unpredictable power of a free society. Now he concludes by saying, let's put this together. Health collectivists behaving like Jacobins are sure there is one best way. They believe they are the arbiter of truth. Cloaking themselves in the holy robes of the augur of the common good, dissent is not to be tolerated. The end to the pandemic requires not that we follow the collectivists, but that we are free to consider different perspectives and discover in the course of an uncoerced social process what really works. I love it. Highly recommend you subscribe, by the way, to uh, Barry Brownstein. And uh, just, I, I believe he also now has a, a Substack presence. But I, I'll have a link to his article from the American Institute for Economic Research in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Definitely recommend his take on things. Ah, what do you do? I'm not calling for people, let's go out there, tooth and knuckle. We're going to be like the Proud Boys. We're going to fight them in the streets. But I think you got to be serious about being a truth warrior of sorts. You've got to be willing to, you got to be willing to be one of those people who reads the fine print. This was explained to me several years ago, and I want you to know, I'm not a person who likes to read the fine print. I confuse easily. 
My wife is really good at this. She's a mathematician. She's very, very smart, way smarter than I am. And so when we are looking through something and there's fine print to be read, I always ask her, would you take a look at this? Tell me anything you see that uh, that I would miss. And more often than not, she picks up the stuff that I miss. But I do believe that, you know, if you want to if you want to get it right down to it, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's those who read the fine print and those who don't. In my experience, the people who read the fine print are the ones who will most likely be able to be free. And the people who just click agree, you know, <laughs> the Apple user agreement comes up. Yeah, I agree, whatever. They're the ones who are going to be sorry. There's an excellent article actually from Alan Stevo who says, look, if you're serious about being a truth warrior, you have got to be willing to ask for and actually read source documents. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is so you don't accidentally spread bad information, and it's also so you don't allow policymakers to exercise exercise greater power than they legitimately have. For instance, somebody wrote to Alan Stevo recently and said, Hey, Alan, is this true? I found this on Nextdoor. And it's, it's a quote that says, California state guidelines for all hospitals starting Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. Visitors to the hospital have to show proof of COVID vaccinations or negative test results within 72 hours, excluding home tests. Only antigen and PCR testing is acceptable. If a visitor is unable to show proof of identification, vaccination, or negative COVID-19 test, aside from end-of-life exceptions, they will not be able to enter the facility for indoor visitation. And the person writing this says, please pray for us nurses. We are uh, worried about the violence toward us. Okay. Now, Alan says, look, thank you for this note. It certainly sounds true, doesn't it? You almost feel for the nurse who is as well who wants your pity or for being the person 75 years after Nuremberg who says to you, I was just following orders, or worse, she says to you, I will just be following orders. But his point here is don't follow orders, specifically disobey immoral orders. Ridicule those who follow such orders. He says if a law-abiding, ethical, moral person wants to commit violence against you at work, you're probably the one doing something wrong. The tests don't work. The tests are bogus. The tests are capricious and allow capricious control of our society by those people who are the most capricious and entirely undeserving of such control. The nurse you quote, he tells this writer, preemptively invokes the familiar Nuremberg defense, I'm just going to be following orders. But he says that's not good enough. German medical professionals were sentenced to death on June 2nd, 1948 because they just followed orders. So he follows this up with a warning about what do you do when you find things like this posted on social media? We're going to come back to that here in just a few moments. But the idea here is don't just go out there and disseminate it and perpetuate a falsehood. you got to be willing to vet that information. He describes how that's done. We'll touch on that just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm sharing this article from Alan Stevo, where someone asked him, Hey, Alan, is this true? I found this on Nextdoor. And it was uh, regarding a, a proposed or a supposed policy uh, that would deny people entry into any California hospital, barring that they jump through this hoop or that hoop to prove that they've either been vaccinated or that they have a, a negative COVID test. And, you know, it's it's a legit concern. And I, I see things that are passed around on social media, too. I wonder, hey, is that real? Is it, How seriously should I take this? But I want you to listen to how Alan Stevo responds to this writer. He says, in response to all potential fake news you receive, I want you to do one thing. Don't ask someone else, is this true? Don't say, oh, that poor nurse. In fact, he says, don't circulate it around to others and ask others to prove it for you. He says, assume the statement untrue until the person claiming it proves it to you. Now, he says, the person who sent you this has sent you a PSYOP-filled piece of propaganda, perhaps unwittingly, and they've recruited you to help spread that propaganda. You are spreading their propaganda even though you don't know whether it's true or not. In this specific situation and in the community around you, you are no more upright than the propaganda-spreading anchor on the fake news. In other words, good intentions don't mean much. Outcome, though, means a great deal. So Alan Stevo says you don't want to spread such value-attacking propaganda. Stories that normalize or paint evil as inevitable are a form of predictive programming. Evil must be stood against, not acquiesced to and circulated as the new normal. And the person sending this note to you could be misinformed as well. So he says, please write her back with this question. Would you please send me the policy that you got this information from? And he says, that's a proper answer to a statement made by anyone, anywhere, about a new policy. That's what you want. You want to see the policy. Now, the policy is usually a PDF that looks like it was written by a lawyer. It may even be signed by that lawyer. You don't want a forwarded email from an HR department or a CEO or a link to a website with a few easy-to-read bullet points or a screen capture of some text messages with a colleague or boss You want to see the policy. Now, he says, seeing the policy, of course, doesn't make the policy right. Many illegal and immoral policies exist. Seeing and understanding the policy, though, gets you one step closer to getting to the truth. It gets you one step closer to combating that which is illegal or immoral. So he says, put her on the spot. Ask her for that policy. Do that before she goes around preparing others for this awful situation you describe by claiming it to be the state policy. And if she doesn't want to get the policy, then write something like this and do it with kindness. Tell her, until you read the policy, you shouldn't believe everything you were told. There may be other details in that policy that may have been left out when they were being communicated to you. There might even be loopholes in the policy that you can use to help others. You owe it to the patients and family members to read the whole policy, especially before posting something like this. Now, he says, don't get me wrong. I've heard some horror stories from California hospitals, and I'm not arguing that some policy like this doesn't exist. 
but I am arguing against anyone spreading commentary about a policy without having that policy and reading that policy. That's exactly what fake news has done throughout this catastrophe. Policies with massive exemptions have been dishonestly called mandatory or required by the media and in the general public. He says, since I never wear a face mask, yet live a normal life, despite living in one of the most locked-down places in this country, I can tell you that the words face masks required are never true. If allowed, those exemptions may be quietly closed. Rather than allow such exemptions to be ignored, rather than allow face masks required to be normalized, rather than allow all exemptions to disappear, it is the job of the thinking person to openly loudly open these exemptions wider till the policy is irrelevant and dies the miserable, shameful death befitting such nonsensical ideas. His point is that in this era, we need to be savvy people. All of us need to be savvy people calling out anyone who touts propaganda. And by the way, dear listener, that means you keeping my feet to the fire. If I put something out there that is incomplete, untrue, or false, I need you to call me on it. I'm not going to do it deliberately. My goal is to never mislead you, but if I get bad information, I need you to point it out and say, hey, you may want to reconsider that or you may want to retract that, which I will. Alan Stevo says, people like that may be overly trusting of people that they shouldn't be trusting of. That's the likely situation. So he says this person may be someone paid to make posts like this or someone who willingly shills for a policy free of charge. Paid shills these days are called marketing professionals. They post all kinds of fake information all over the place intended to elicit a reaction. But he says decent people don't post anything for the primary purpose of eliciting a reaction. Decent people only post things for the primary purpose of telling the truth. That's a key focus that any decent person needs to have, especially in this era. How do I tell the truth as much as possible? How do I only communicate information that is intended to be as truthful as possible? How do I get others to react the way I want them to? He says that's a manipulative, dishonest question to ask. And so much of the world around us is asking exactly that question. Look, there's fake news all around us. The masses have always been easily swayed by fake news. It was once impossible for impresarios to move large segments of the global population at once. Rumor would circulate about, and it was the job of each person to figure out what that meant and what was true. Now, the same happens today. But there's radio, TV, social media, and it can all be so easily controlled and orchestrated by central figures, by marketing professionals. Little has changed other than the fact that people who want to see, who want you to be harmed and controlled have so much more influence over what you see around you. If you stop ingesting social media, radio, and TV, then no one can do that to you. Just stopping all three will suddenly free you from almost all propaganda and fake news. It's very liberating. So if you aren't going to quit cold turkey, you need to be savvy. Otherwise, you welcome yourself to be a pawn in all of this. 
He says, if you want to use any of those three, TV, radio, or social media, you need to be a constant warrior for the truth. Nothing can be believed, nothing can be circulated until you truly understand what it is that you're reading. Now that means you've got to find the primary source document. And only then can we be having a real conversation about this. You need to figure out where the written policy is, who passed it, who do they claim it applies to. Does such a body have the ability to make such requirements over the people they claim to be able to make requirements over? Oh yeah, these are the kind of questions that will get people hot under the collar. He says there's a pet project that one time started as a mosquito abatement project. Today it is known as the CDC. Does that glorified mosquito abatement project have the authority to mask a child? Does that glorified mosquito abatement project have the authority to shut down an economy? Does that glorified mosquito abatement project have the authority to make charging rent illegal? The answer is no, they don't. Certainly not in my life, nor should you let them have that authority in yours. So Alan Stevo is saying, ask the hard questions about every requirement you are told now exists. But he says you need the source document. You need to read it and understand it. Until then, every detail of a government policy needs to be deemed fake news. This may be the most revolutionary thing you hear all week. And of course, I will have a link in the show notes to this article by Alan Stevo. He's a regular contributor to LewRockwell.com, which is one of the pillars of my resources for wrong thinkers. I hope you'll check it out. Go to the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take a look, see what you think. All right, we've got to take a quick break. As we head to the break, let me remind you that one of my sponsors is lifesavingfood.com. I hope that you will click on the link which I provide in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com and see what you can find to bolster your food storage program. they got a great selection. The prices are good. It's in stock. It's kind of the perfect situation. And you get a 10% discount if you use the code HIDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Listen, I don't want to make myself out here to be a really generous kind of guy, but more often than not, you will find more articles in my show notes than I have time to get to in the course of a day's program. Those are there. I still publish them there, and they are for your convenience, for your uh, edification, if you will. You can you can take a look at them and see what, what you think. Research further if you'd like to. couple articles I will not have time to talk about in, in this hour, but I would still point you to because they're part of the show notes. Um, as we're witnessing this ongoing clampdown on the populations of Australia and New Zealand, something that has come to mind over and over again is how do they put up with this? I mean, it's, it is heartbreaking 
to see what's happening. And now <clears throat> I, I I hesitate to say this because it might be fake news. I don't know. I haven't seen the original document. But there's a report coming out now that is making the round saying that there is a new uh, facial recognition app that is being used by authorities, and they're claiming, and if this is true, and I'm not telling you it is, just take it with a grain of salt. If this is true, police in Australia will reach out to people and tell them, we need to know your location. In other words, to make sure you're not violating the lockdown. You have 15 minutes to send us a photo with your face so we can verify you know, your facial recognition as well as your location. Otherwise, you know, we're going to come and fine you or arrest you or whatever. If this is true, then you are seeing one of the most uh, clever and insidious police states within memory being erected right before your eyes. And it takes me back to about 20-some years ago when New Zealand and Australia were disarming their public. And they did it incrementally. It wasn't all at once. There was a couple of high-profile mass shootings, and they took the guns away from the people. And the the heavy-handed tactics you're seeing today are only possible in places where the public has been disarmed, where the government has a monopoly on force. So there's an article here from Robert Bridge, why Americans will never surrender their guns, even if it means peace with the police. It's not, you know, celebrating, yeah, shoot them up. It's just that Second Amendment, that limit on government power has frustrated more politicians and, and for good reason. And it should be a very good reason for you and I to, you know, commit. I'm not going to give them up. There's another article here. This is from Daniel Klein. I know you've heard the statistics. You know, 98% of the COVID hospitalizations and deaths have been among the unvaccinated. But is that correct? Well, Daniel Klein has a great article on the 98% propaganda being touted by authoritarians. I mean, if anything, I've heard people say, hey, uh, you might want to consider not traveling this weekend. Uh, Why? Because I'm unvaccinated? No, because it could bring you in, in close contact with people who are vaccinated and you're more likely to catch COVID from them. Oh, <laughs> actually, I think there may be some truth to that. All right. Now, I, I want to get on to one other article here. This was a fun one from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. I've never watched Peppa Pig, but I have grandkids, and so I gather that uh, Peppa Pig is is a real thing. And Annie is talking about raising children to be more than Peppa parrots. She says, Peppa Pig, a British children's cartoon, has taken America by storm, so much so that children are absorbing the British accent its characters feature. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal explains, parents are resorting or reporting that they've become mummy. Santa has morphed into Father Christmas, for whom children must make mince pies, and mature phrases like, how clever, pervade toddler dialects. In other words, today's children have experienced full-on Peppa absorption. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, on the surface, that absorption is cute. A phrase through which children, uh, apparently who have uh, weathered the pandemic lockdowns in front of the screen, must pass before they mature and grow up. 
But she says such absorption also provides a reminder for us adults. Peppa Pig may be harmless, but the other influences our children are absorbing often aren't. And making sure our children are absorbing good influences is one of the primary roles of a parent. Now, this absorption approach to child-rearing was promoted by political theorist W. Cleon Skousen in his 1962 book, So You Want to Raise a Boy. Skousen said it's the idea that we should surround our children with the kind of adults we would like our children to emulate. Adults who will exhibit the love, interest, kindness, leadership, and ambition which inspire children to become like them and thereby absorb them into the exciting, wonderful precincts of the adult world. So breaking Skousen's comments into bite-sized pieces creates the picture of the influences adults should seek to be as well as place in the lives of their children. So for love, for instance, parents and adults who shower children with hugs and kisses immediately come to mind. And while such love is good and essential, Annie Holmquist says we should also balance that with the tough love that involves speaking hard truths and giving correction. Children who only receive pampering will absorb the mentality that they can do no wrong. Then there's interest. In a world where most people are simply interested in their phones, finding adults who will encourage a child's interest in other directions can be a challenge. Yet they're out there. Look for influences who are excited about learning, are eager to introduce your children to good books, are avid readers themselves, and are quick to share what they read with others. Let your children absorb the influence of adults who ask questions of children and challenge their little minds to think outside the box. Kindness. She says, whether parents or grown-ups in general, it's easy for adults to overlook children and not take time for them. But a kind individual will do just the opposite. They won't necessarily make children their primary focus, doting on them as if they're the only thing in the world. But they'll talk to them share special times with them, and in general, be individuals whom children have no trouble approaching. Then there's leadership. And she says, contrary to what we see coming out of our so-called leaders in Washington, true leaders don't thumb their noses at their own rules, but are instead humble about their mistakes and are willing to apologize when they are wrong. Surround your children with influences who don't just give orders and then do the exact opposite but who exhibit strong conviction and follow through on those convictions, even when difficult. And then there's ambition. Annie Holmquist says those with good ambition strive after worthy goals rather than playing the victim. If we want our children to make something of their lives rather than just riding on the coattails of others, then we should introduce to them individuals who aren't lazy, but who are willing to step up meet the challenge, and make a difference in this crazy world of ours. Now, sadly, it can be difficult to allow our children to absorb these types of influences in their lives, mainly because their time is demanded by two main sources. Former Teacher of the Year John Taylor Gatto describes this scenario well in a speech entitled, Why Schools Don't Educate. He said, Two institutions at present control our children's lives, television and schooling, in that order. Both of these reduce the real world of wisdom, of wisdom, fortitude, temperance, and justice to a never-ending, non-stop, non-stopping abstraction. In centuries past, the time of a child and adolescent 
would be occupied in real work, real charity, real adventures, and the realistic search for mentors who might teach you what you really wanted to learn. A great deal of time was spent in community pursuits, practicing affection, meeting and studying every level of the community, learning how to make a home, and dozens of other tasks necessary to become a whole man or woman. End quote. Annie Holmquist says, The good news is that times have changed in these past few years. With circumstances adjusting so that parents can have more control over at least the schooling aspect of their children's lives. So with that in mind, she says, let's resolve to not just allow our children to waste time absorbing influences such as Peppa Pig. Instead, let's surround them with influences that will make our children face the world with with courage and character as adults. Gosh, that sounds like a pretty full-time challenge. But it also sounds like it would be very, very worthwhile. I was kind of tickled. I I don't. I thought I had read just about everything that Cleon Skousen had written, and I have never seen. So you want to raise a boy? Well, I've raised three of them. Okay, two and a half of them. Still in the process of raising one, but that seems like some pretty solid advice. Looks like I may have a little bit of reading to do over the weekend. Thanks once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Please visit my page, thebrianhideshow.com. Subscribe to the podcast if you like. Become a supporter if you'd like. Say hi to my sponsors and check out those show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.